0: Please remain standing and turn with me, if you will, in God's Word to Luke chapter 23. We're going to finish the chapter today, verses 26 through 56. Um, Thank you all for praying for me. I've been sick the last week or so. I'm on the mend. I'm getting there. I apologize in advance. If I cough, I will try to turn the microphone off as I do. And... uh... If you're using one of the church Bibles, you'll find that on page 884. Luke chapter 23, verses 26 through 56. Beloved saints, here and at home, this is our God's word to us. Uh, Let us give our attention to the reading of it. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. For they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him. Coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you enter, when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sunlight failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breast, and all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consecrated who had not consented to their decision and action and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and he wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid it in a tomb cut in stone where no one had yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. So ends uh, the reading of God's word. Let us ask his blessing on our time in it this morning. Father, your word is always wonderful. Always to be handled with great care. Uh, But this passage, recording the death of our beloved Savior, it's overwhelming. And so we ask that you would grant us the grace to hear your word and to find your comfort. And to have the strength to to surrender to our King, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. weeks ago, after more than 70 years on the throne, uh, the Queen of England died. And if tradition has been followed uh, all throughout that land and that empire, people have probably shouted out, the Queen is dead, long live the King. It's the appropriate version of the older, more typically used, the King is dead, long live the King. Uh, sometimes a little bit confusing to people. What that means is uh, that that when one ruler dies, people are meant to be assured that another ruler has taken his or her place and the kingdom endures. And so as Queen Elizabeth passed from this life, her son Charles ascended the throne ...and the kingdom lived on. But what happens... ...what happens when the king of glory... ...the very king of life... ...dies? I mean, that's who Jesus has claimed to be, isn't it? That's what we've been seeing... ...in Luke's gospel. As we saw last time, he claimed to be God... ...the creator of all life... ...and the the judge of all people. And that's no small claim. And yet, in our passage this morning... He dies. How are we to make sense out of that? How can the all-powerful king be conquered? I mean, a king is supposed to conquer his enemies, right? Not be conquered. And a king is supposed to protect his people and provide a home for them. A king is is meant to, to provide a place for his people to rest and not live in constant fear. To have peace. And the greater the king, the greater the expectation. Especially when it's the king of heaven. It's not like another can just rise up and take his place. It's okay that the creator died, we'll just get another creator. Because there is no other, there is only him. What happens to his kingdom when he dies? And how are we to respond? Now I know what we're tempted to say. Oh, pastor, I've read the next chapter. (laughs) He didn't stay dead. He rose on the third day. And indeed, we're going to look at that next week, Lord willing. But the people there that day didn't know that. All they had was the Old Testament Scriptures and what they saw before their eyes. Now, if they knew their Scriptures and if they believed their Scriptures, then they would have known that Jesus had to die. And that His, his death, far from disproving who He claimed to be, proved who He claimed to be. But not all knew that. And not all believed that. And so our passage records for us three different responses to Jesus' death. And then his response to each of those. We're going to see that there were those there who would pity Jesus and his suffering. We will see that there are those there who mocked him and actually sought to celebrate his pain. And then we're also going to see that there, there were those there who looked upon the dying king. And in him they saw their only hope of salvation. And they responded with faith. But what really matters at the end of, of the day is what you and I do. How we respond. And that's where we're going to close our time this morning as we look at this passage because it is the most important question you or I will ever answer. And so my hope as we we look at this powerful and sobering passage is really to drive this point home. It's this. Your race, your gender, your social status can't save you. All that matters is how you respond to the death of Jesus Christ. That's what matters. For your eternity. Now, before we get into how the people responded, we need to see that Jesus uh, had to die in order to fulfill the Old Testament scriptures, and, and and also why he had to die in order to fulfill the Old Testament scriptures. So, so uh, we have to remember that nothing Jesus does is without a purpose, and therefore, what he wanted to accomplish was not possible without his death. Remember, he prayed in the garden, if there's any other way, let this cup pass before me. The cup didn't pass, so it was necessary. We saw last time that the Old Testament uh, had uh, many passages that foretold the coming of the mighty king, who would save God's people. Uh, He would be great, he would be righteous, uh, and he would conquer uh, his enemies. These are the promises everyone likes to remember and think about and hear and celebrate. But there were other promises in the Old Testament scriptures as well, like Psalm 22 that foretold that he would be abandoned by his God, his Father. And yet even in the midst of that, he would seek to intercede and seek the forgiveness of those who tormented him. Or Isaiah, as we, as we heard a small portion of in our declaration of pardon today, foretold a horrific, painful, and disgraceful death amidst criminals. In other words, what happens in our passage should not be a shock. God warned his people what was coming. That Jesus had to die in the midst uh, of criminals, in a horrific way, it was, was testified to by the, by the Old Testament scriptures. But we also want to answer why. Why did he have to die? Now volumes could be written on that subject, and indeed volumes have been written on that subject. But um, our passage gives us three answers, so I'm just going to focus on those three today. Three reasons, according to our passage. And the first reason that he had to die was to reopen a way to the Father. Now, a little background would be helpful here. Uh, When Adam and Eve were created, they had communion with God. They just drew near and they they had fellowship with their their Heavenly Father. And they were free to live in God's garden, which uh, Ezekiel tells us was his temple, his sanctuary, or we might call it his house in creation. They lived in God's house, in his temple, in his sanctuary. And that that life in his house, in his garden, was a foretaste of heaven. Which was their ultimate destination where they were created to live for all eternity with their God. Now while in the garden, they were supposed to work for six days and then rest on the seventh day... Uh, ...as a confession of what awaited them in heaven... ...an eternal rest. So long as they obeyed... ...so long as they avoided sin... uh, ...which is breaking God's law, His commands... ...they were free to live in God's garden... ...until that day when they would enter into... ...His eternal, heavenly, perfect rest... ...and they'd never have to go back to work but they would rest. But God warned them that if they disobeyed, their punishment would be death. And that included physical death, but but so much more. It included uh, broken fellowship with God in this life and in the next. And so when Adam and Eve did sin... They were cast out of the garden. They were cast out of God's house. A a visible demonstration that that their fellowship with their creator, their, their, their heavenly father, had been ruptured, had been severed. And then God placed an angel at the entrance to the garden with a flaming sword announcing that death awaited any who tried to sneak back into God's presence. Now later, years later, God's presence would be manifested among his people uh, in the tabernacle and eventually the temple. But what's really interesting is that reality was replicated in the architecture because God's presence was, was manifested at the very center of the tabernacle and the temple, the Holy of Holies, and then there was a curtain around it with what embroidered in it? Angels, fiery angels, reminding God's people that His presence was off limits to them and that the price of any who tried to enter was death. This is why Jesus had to die. This is why Jesus was willing to die. Because he wanted to let us in, but he knew that the price was death. And so he offered his death in the place of ours, so that we could enter back into God's presence. Not just in this life, but for all eternity. In other words, he died to reopen a way into his Father's presence for us. And that's why at the moment of his death... That curtain that barred the way into his presence was torn open as if to say the way has been reopened. The angel's sword has been quenched, not with your blood, but with your king's. But there's another reason that Jesus had to die and it was to provide the rest for sinners that Adam and Eve failed to obtain. He didn't just provide a way back into the garden uh, to work with the hope of earning that eternal rest. Had He done that, we would have had to live perfect lives from the moment of our salvation on. Would any of us have any hope if that was the case? No, Jesus did all the necessary work to earn that eternal rest. And that's why our passage ends, right? What's the final thing in our passage after Jesus dies? It's that his people enjoyed their Sabbath rest. that's what kings do for their people they provide a place for their people to rest that's what Jesus did he he obtained a way back into our father's presence so that we could rest in his presence for all eternity what all this means is that far from disproving that Jesus was the great king he had to die in order to show us that he is the king it's fitting then ...that at the very center of our passage... ...if you looked at Luke's structure... ...it's really beautiful... ...but at the very center of that... ...everything hinges upon this reality... ...that proclamation made in verse 38... ...this is the king of the Jews... ...now... the, uh, ...the Roman leaders... ...put that up there in mockery... ...to make fun of Jesus and his claim... ...but in God's perfect plan... ...it proclaimed the reality... Uh, to To borrow uh, or steal a line from Joseph, what they meant for evil, God intended for good. His death did not disprove that he was the king. It testified to it. Now now, simply saying that his death was necessary doesn't mean that all people recognized that it was and responded well, <laughs> obviously. And so our passage records three different responses to the death of Jesus. And I think that these three responses basically encapsulate all possible responses in one way or another. These are the only three ways people respond to Jesus. And each brings its own response from him back. I know that uses the word response a lot, but... uh, they see his death or or that he's about to die, they say something and then he says something back. And so we want to look at each of these. And, And perhaps the least surprising, after all we've been seeing, was mockery. Now what is surprising is that mockery in our passage brings Jesus' prayer for forgiveness. Verse 35 begins with, um, or records the religious leaders scoffing. that They were mocking Jesus. Uh, And just after that, verses 36 and 37, the Roman soldiers mocked him. And then we read that one of the two criminals that was executed with him mocked him. Now when... Somebody on death row at the moment of his execution is mocking you. You know you've hit the bottom. And all of their taunts were basically the same. If you're so great, if you're so powerful, if you are who you say you are, why don't you save yourself? The criminal adds, of course, oh, and me too. (laughs) So there were, what's their assumption? Their assumption was that if Jesus was who he says he is, that his top priority would be his own safety, his own comfort, because that would be their top priority. But that doesn't fully explain their mockery, their, their actual joy at his pain, their delight in his suffering. What could possibly cause someone to do that? I think if we think about it, we know the answer it's fear. Let me give you an example say a wild animal terrorizes a community. the emotional toll it takes is catastrophic. Because that community's sense of peace and security is, is slowly eaten away and destroyed. As a sense and a feeling of weakness and helplessness replaces it. And so the longer it goes on, the greater the threat, the steeper the toll it takes. So what do the people do if that animal that has been terrorizing them is eventually caught? I think we know. They put it in a cage. They put it on display. And then everyone gathers around it so they can do what? Act brave. They taunt the animal that once terrified them So that they can reclaim their sense of security and power. And believe that the threat was not really so big after all. But that's all it is. All it is is a sense and an illusion of power. Because were that animal to escape, (laughs) the terror would return. And so in other words, it's play acting in an attempt to comfort themselves amidst their fear this is what the rulers and the soldiers and the one criminal are doing they're mocking Jesus because he terrifies them because he's not like them because he can't be controlled and they feel like if they can mock him and act like they have power over him they will assuage their fear Now that shouldn't shock us, it's human nature. There, hanging on the cross, being mistreated, is what shocks us, because it's there that Jesus prays, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Jesus took pity on them. Now that doesn't mean that they're out of danger just because he prayed for them, but it does mean that there is hope even for those who would attack Jesus. Another response of the people was pity, which brings Jesus' warning of judgment. Pity, which brings Jesus' judgment or warning of judgment. Now, as as Jesus carried his cross toward the place of its execution, a great crowd mourned and they lamented. Verse 27. uh, They saw this as unjust and cruel and sad and were told that they had pity on Jesus. They felt sorry for him. Now, on one hand, that seems better, doesn't it, than mockery? Even admirable. But what is pity? Often it is a lot like mockery in that it's meant to comfort those who have the pity. We reserve pity for the, for the helpless, for the weak, for those who aren't as strong as us. Pity for Jesus then is just another, albeit less obvious, way of removing the threat of Jesus. Because if we pity him, we don't need to fear him. If he's weak, he can't be dangerous. Pity by the crowd here is an attempt to control Jesus, to defang him. look how he responds in verses 28 and following he says don't weep for me and then he goes on to warn them that judgment is coming that their concern should be for themselves he's not the one who needs saving they are they need to prepare for judgment they need to seek salvation while there's time and so there's hope for these as well and that leaves us asking the question: Where, where is hope found? Well, that brings us to the second criminal. There were two that were executed with Jesus, and, and this this second criminal embodies actually the response of many there, but he he articulates it the best and here actually here's Jesus response back and his his response is faith which brings Jesus words of comfort that's the third and final response to the death of Jesus faith which brings his words of comfort now while the first criminal was railing against Jesus suggesting that, that being king would mean saving both of them the second criminal was facing his reality and the consequences of his own decisions. And in a moment of absolute clarity, he, he rebuked the first criminal saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same condemnation, the same sentence of condemnation? Do you not fear God? Interesting question, isn't it? Because this is what we've been talking about is fearing God. And that it's fear that that leads to mockery. And it's fear that that leads to uh, pity. And to be sure it is. But what are they trying to do? They're not admitting that fear. They're not letting it lead to respect and awe. They're trying to cover it up and hide it. And so their fear is not a fear of reverence. It's not a fear of respect. It's not a fear of humility. And it's certainly not a fear of surrender. its terror that leads them to try and comfort themselves with lies but the fear that this man is talking about this criminal is a is a sober recognition of reality and not hiding from it it's a humble admission of guilt before a holy god It's a confession of of God's goodness and and his power and his authority. And it's that fear that leads him to turn to Jesus after rebuking the other criminal and say to him, Jesus, when you enter into your kingdom, would you remember me? Could you have mercy on someone as sinful and as messed up as me? How different of a response is that from mockery or pity? The Proverbs tell us, towards the scorners, God is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. And we're we're forced to ask, dare we hope that this criminal on death row, moments from taking his last breath, might find favor with the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Creator of all things? And the answer is yes, that's exactly what we find. Because the last words that that man heard before he passed from this world into the next where truly i say to you today you will be with me in paradise and as that criminal closed his eyes on this life and he and he opened his eyes he was in god's eternal paradise and he even heard those most baffling of words that a sinner can ever hear well done my good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. And he found rest. What all of this means, beloved, is, is that what matters is what you do with Jesus and, what, and his death. That's what matters. What you do with him criminal was no more righteous than anyone else standing there that day. In fact he was probably worse Uh, that's why after all he was being executed but the promise of heaven was given to him not because he was more righteous but because he humbly bowed before the king In faith and in worship, he owned his sin. He he didn't try to soothe his fear with mockery or pity. He simply confessed the truth and asked for mercy. He didn't place his hope and and his comfort in his own goodness or, or his ability to convince himself that Jesus isn't really a threat. He, he understood that, that pity is not honor, and that mockery is not power, and that fear is not weakness. And he found comfort. He, he found salvation. And this point that all that matters is what you do with Jesus is, is driven home actually all the way through our passage. There's, there's this beautiful aspect to our passage that, that you might miss because Luke carefully identifies many people who stood opposed to Jesus and many people who bowed him. But what's really interesting is that for the most part, there are two identical parties on each side. And so you have a crowd that pities Jesus in verses 27 through 30, and you have a crowd that repents in verse 48. You have people watching to entertain themselves in verse 35, and friends watching in horror in verse 49. You have religious leaders who are scoffing and mocking in verse 35, and a religious leader from among them who honors Jesus' body in death in verses 50 uh, through 53. You have soldiers mocking Jesus in verses 36 to 37 and a soldier confessing truly this man was righteous in verse 47. You have one criminal reviling Jesus right up to his death and another bowing his knee as he draws his last breath. And then beyond all of these, you have a Gentile bearing the cross of Christ up the hill and women honoring Jesus' body and death. So what's Luke doing by including men, women, Gentiles, Jews, religious leaders, civil leaders, nobodies, crowds? What's he doing with all of this? Some finding salvation, some not. Well, the point is this. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. It doesn't matter if you're a religious leader, a commoner, a criminal, a citizen, or a soldier. All that matters is what you do with Jesus and his death on the cross. Because every individual person comes into judgment or salvation based on how he or she responds to Jesus. And so it's fitting that we would end at the Lord's Supper a visible proclamation of the Lord's death and His promise that He's coming again. This meal is the only place in worship where some are excluded. Because only those who like the criminal on the cross who have confessed that they rightly deserve judgment and their only hope is in Jesus. Only those who recognize that, that pity is not honor That mockery is not power. And that fear of God is not weakness. Only those end up hearing the words of comfort, the assurance that Jesus will remember them when he enters his kingdom, and that they will be with him and find eternal rest in paradise. We'll just pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. A king who so loved his people that he was willing to die to make a way back into your presence for us so that we might have eternal rest. And so we ask that you would help us to honestly face our sin and not to hide behind pity or mockery, but to humbly seek your grace. And in seeking, may we find more than we could ever dream or imagine. May we find Jesus. Amen. Uh, Just to be safe uh, today, I've asked Pastor Isaac to serve the Lord's Supper as I continue to recover from a cold. So, Pastor Isaac. Let's pray. God Almighty, we thank you and praise you for all that you've done for us. We thank you that you were willing to give up your own son, though he was the king of everything. Lord, we worship you and we praise you for all that you've done. And we ask that you would continue to work in our hearts to have this faith of that criminal who hung on the cross. That we would forsake all earthly desires and that we would cling to Jesus above all else. We praise you, Lord, again and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.